BMI. And with that, I will introduce today's um, speaker for Grand Rounds. Um, so I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Alan Green. He is the Raymond Sobel Professor of Psychiatry, a professor of molecular and systems biology, and chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. He's also the director of Synergy, the Dartmouth Clinical and Translational Science Institute. Dr. Green received his BA from Columbia College and his MD from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Following an internship in medicine at Beth Israel in Boston, he was a research associate at the National Institute of Mental Health and director of biomedical research at the Special Action Office for Drug Abuse Prevention in the Executive Office of the President. He completed both a psychiatry residence, residency and a clinical research fellowship at the Harvard-based Massachusetts Mental Health Center. He joined the Harvard faculty in 1984 and was director of the Commonwealth Research Center at Harvard Medical School from 1987 until 2002. He was recruited to be the chairman of Geisel's Department of Psychiatry in November of 2002, and in 2010, he was appointed associate dean for clinical and translational science and became director of Synergy. He's been a highly productive and active investigator with peer-reviewed funding throughout his career and is a prolific author with more than 300 papers, abstracts, and book chapters. His major research interests are the neuropharmacology, neuroimaging, and treatment of schizophrenia and comorbid substance use disorder, development of medications for the treatment of addiction, brain reward circuitry, and early intervention in schizophrenia. And while I'd be delighted to hear him speak about any number of his own areas of research expertise today, I'm delighted to welcome him to discuss the tremendous opportunities that Synergy provides to promote the success of faculty at our institution in wide-ranging research endeavors, to collaborate with researchers and innovators at other institutions, and to bring, to bring the fruits of those efforts to bear in improving the health of our patients and the population. Welcome, Dr. Green. Thank you very much, uh, Kelly. Uh, can I be here in the back of the room? <coughs> So uh, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here and uh, to talk about uh, Synergy. I, I really think it's neat that you guys have a code with the BMI. And I just, uh, <laughs> Rich Rothstein has tremendous impact in this whole institution and just demonstrates. So I, I'm, I'm delighted to talk about the, uh, the Dartmouth Clinical and Translational Science Institute Synergy, which we're based in, uh, at least the administrative offices are right here. Here's. Uh, uh, Sheila Noon, who's our executive director, I think sits right there, if I'm not mistaken. So just to be uh, completely transparent, I have uh, actually, in the last year, I've had a little bit of support from Alchemies and some of our animal research. This is many years ago, and I have a patent uh, that is of little value. Uh, I wish it were more. Uh, so I'll tell you about Synergy. And the, it, Synergy is part of the CTSA program, Clinical Translational Science Award program. The CTSA program started in 2006, and the notion is that to re-engineer re translational science, it, it sort of took off out of the General Clinical Research Center uh, program, which had been in existence, I don't know, Dave, well, you know, 30 years, 40 years. Uh, Dartmouth never had a GCRC, but when I was at, in Boston, at the Brigham, at Harvard, the Brigham had one. Um, the BI had one, the Mass General had one. I was very familiar with that, but didn't have it here. So, but but the, the Zerhouni, who was the head of NIH at the time, decided that these programs should be morphed into something that he called the CTSAs, with the notion of figuring out a way to use them to more 
rapidly transition discoveries into into people and so it was launched in 2006 we applied in 2006 for a planning grant and it was awarded Steve Spielberg who was the dean was was the PI Murray Cork who was the then chair of medicine applied in 2008 and 2009 and was not funded I was asked in 2010 to resubmit this application we came then now the idea was it just I should say there were going to be 60 of these throughout the country 6-0 when we applied in 2010 there were five slots left and we came in sixth we were actually told we were going to be funded and then at the last minute we weren't funded and we had to put it back in with the idea we had to knock someone else off and we did so we came in fourth in the country in 2013 about 35 or 40 people applied we came in fourth we got funded and just before we were funded here in in June of 2013 after we applied the Institute of Medicine came out with a report they had been asked by Congress to look at the CTSA program and to try to decide was it worth the money is this a good idea and their report was yes but it ought to change and the changes they ought to be there are these 60 programs throughout the country and they ought to start working together and form networks to really dramatically you know kind of exponentially increase translational research productivity as a you know and Congress was the one who pushed this so anyway here we are funded in October 13 right after this report came out but we were responding to the old form of the CTSA and it wasn't President Hanlon said okay it's a game-changer well let's see so here this is what the CTSA world looks like so there are these programs all throughout the country you can see Massachusetts has quite a few of them you know Harvard Tufts BU and UMass New York all the medical schools in New York California Texas University of Texas system and these this is the Cal system and Stanford and they're in obviously in Chicago but here we are in New Hampshire right on the border of Vermont we're the only one in the northern New England area so this is this is one of the NIH and by the way the CTSAs are part of the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences which is part of NIH is one of the institutes of NIH so the CTSA program here's this is the language that tends to be used but people think about T0 to T4 research and just to be clear T0 research is basic science discovery T1 is taking early ideas from basic science and putting them into first in man or using animal models T1 research T2 is classic clinical research you know effectiveness efficacy research rather and T3 tends to be effectiveness does it work in a population and T4 is public health health outcomes the kind of thing work that's largely done health services research in the Dartmouth Institute so when when I wrote this first in 2010 and then we basically changed it slightly you know the next opportunity we had was in 2013 this is what we wrote we said that look Dartmouth has a strong basic science history and strong basic science programs strong outcomes programs this so-called t3 t4 research by contrast the clinical research programs here were relatively weak and that's based on the history of not having a GCRC largely though not entirely 
and that the pipeline for new translational investigators, especially within clinical departments, was weak and was thin. And we just said that. And we got funded. So when we, when we put the application in, it was through Dartmouth. That was the word we used. And that's the college, Hitchcock, the medical school, but also all these other components. And this is right from, from that application. Thayer, Tark, uh, TDI, uh, the Healthcare Delivery Science uh, Center. Riverview was, a, was a, in Maine, where some psychiatry was done. It's not, we're not, it's not being used anymore. Obviously, the VA, High Value Collaborative, New Hampshire Hospital, which you all have been reading about in the newspapers, probably. And that's a part of the Department of Psychiatry. <coughs> the aims of the application that we put in in 2013, the, the, here it is. Create an integrated home for clinical and translational science at Dartmouth. We were following the RFA, the request for applications, exactly the kind of thing they asked us to do. Create an integrated home. Strengthen clinical research infrastructure and the research pipeline. Create programs for training and career development. Expand the impact of translational research through community alliances. Community-engaged research is really a key component of the CTSA program, and I think it's actually important for whatever we do industry partnerships, and extend access to Dartmouth's large population databases for research. This is, we put this in as an optional idea, extend this stuff for research and what we call reverse translation, taking ideas that are clinical and going back into basic science to understand them. Well, they, we, we got it. It was, it was very, very well reviewed and we were funded. So, and this is, it's probably maybe hard to see this, but uh, this is the, you know, I hate org charts, but I was trying to, show people what, you know, how, how this is organized. Here, I'm, I'm the PI. Sheila Noon, who's right over there, is the executive director, and she leads a team of people, the administrative hub of the program, many of whom are here, Adam, Robin, Lydia, uh, Lori, uh, I don't know who else is here, Scott Berry, uh, and others. We have an external advisory committee. We have a, a community board, and we have three Co-PIs, Bill Green, most of you probably know, who is the former dean and is the chair of microbiology and immunology. John Skinner, who's a health economist, uh, is co-PI. And Anna Tosterson, who's actually part of medicine, and she's, I know, in Europe right now, she's a co-PI. Uh, Chris Amos, who is the head of data sciences, is uh, involved with informatics coordination, data security, and also oversees some of these components. Steve Bartels is associate director. He's a, in psychiatry and TDI and family medicine. He oversees these components, which I'll talk about in a minute. Keith Paulson is from the Thayer School and uh, oversees the academic industry. And Rick Edelow, who I just saw walking in, is associate director. He's obviously from medicine, uh, oversees these components, which again we'll talk about. Uh, and Rich Rothstein, as the CAO of Dartmouth Hitchcock, is ex officio member of our executive committee, as is Bob Zorlock from the VA. And Lee Burgess, the new vice president here of research operations, is, is working collaboratively with me and with Sheila to try to make sure that what we're doing in the CTSA is going to be able to be implemented through the, all the components, including, obviously, Hitchcock. We have an external advisory board meets once a year, but we are uh, talking to these people very frequently. Kathleen Brady from Medical University of South Carolina is the chair. She's a, um, a, a T2 researcher, I would say. 
Uh, Tim Carey, who's a community-engaged researcher from UNC, he's the co-chair of their PI of their CTSA. She's the PI of the CTSA. Becky Jackson from Ohio State is the head of their CTSA. She's an expert on um, uh, on training. Uh, Phil Lavori is a statistician from Stanford. Uh, Maya uh, Neville, Neville Williams is the executive director of the Rockefeller Program. Bob Rizza, uh, Rob Rizza from Mayo. Uh, and Bob Sherman, Rob Sherman, and Bob Sherman from Yale, who's an endocrinologist. This, these are the members of our board that advise us what to do. There's a website, and I would encourage people, if you haven't done this, to uh, go on the website. And you can see what we try to do here. Yoli Sanchez looks very well there, I must say. Um, and you can see the various research tools here. That we that are, have been built, we'll talk about. But if you go on this, you can find almost anything you need to know about synergy and click on things. Oh, and let's say look at this. And this is how you can can ask for uh, uh, to to get involved in some of the things going on in synergy. I don't want to spend any more time on this, but but this website where, and people in the room, Suki's in the in the back there, and others have been very involved in creating this, which keeps getting updated. So I encourage people to look on it, and it's Dartmouth Synergy. You know, .edu. I mean, you can just find it on Google. Now, when we built Synergy, the idea was we were trying to figure out, uh, and again, we were following the, the 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 directions of the RFA that we were responding to, and and so we built these cores: a statistics core, an informatics core a research design core, and an ethics core. There's Jim Bernat in the back of the room who's in charge of the ethics core. And then remembering that, that Dartmouth never had a clinical research unit, we decided, well, we have to build something here. So we built these, which we could talk about, a recruitment and retention core, a registry core, and an industry core, a community-based research core. And, and this was the sort of the, the optional thing that no other CTSA had, as far as we were aware, the Center for Translational Population Research, which was based in the ideas of TDI. Okay, now, so let me just go a couple, through a couple of these. The biostatistics course, led by Tor Tassison, you probably know him, he's in, in medicine, was in, was in family medicine and medicine, and he's in the uh, data sciences. But, here, the note we heard, I heard, in psychiatry and us, where people say, well, you can't find a statistician. How do you power something? What do you do? How do you interpret the data? So Tor and his team have put together a group that will help with protocol development and all these things that you can see here. And there have been about 400, over 400 consultation requests in the last, uh, you know, two, this is uh, two and a half years. Remember, we've only been funded for about three and a half years, but this is for the last two and a half years and grant applications, and there's a walk-in clinic. So now, the idea that we started with, well, we should just give this away. And we can't do that forever, but we wanted to start doing it that way. As time goes on, what we're going to have to do is to probably narrow the availability of this to people who have vouchers that can be given by Synergy, people who have been approved to get access to this. But right now, it's still available to anybody. Uh, I mean, the reason we say that is because it's getting widely used. But we expect that when people get funded, their grants will help support this. They'll build in the support for it. 
Ditto with research design. This is led by Margaret Carragas and her team. So framing your design, talking about aims, ask, figure out how to ask the question. If you have a biomarker, how do you how do you think about that? How do you think about the analysis of the data, interpretation of results? Um, you know, the biostatistics group can help with writing a paper, uh, obviously for writing grants. And they, they have been somewhat less active, but they often spend more time than the statistics group do. So they have 64 of them. Informatics. So the informatics core, biomedical informatics, is created all of these things that are actual tools. Uh, and without going into great detail about them, Inspire, well, I think I have another slide about Vivo is a way of keeping track of bibliography. REDCap, I'll mention. I2B2 is a technique for extracting information out of the electronic data record. This was built at Harvard, and we've brought it here. It's right now working in the Cancer Center, and we're going to be spreading it more broadly. Let me just show you. We'll talk about the Atlas Rate Generator in a minute and the Smart IRB. Eagle Eye is a way of, this was actually created before Synergy, a way of keeping track of the various research capacities throughout the institution. There have been uh, you know, over 60 consultation requests. And, and, and the, what we're working on now is figuring out more uh, dramatically and easily how to get into the electronic health record here, and obviously at the VA as well, to figure out how to use this for research. This is not simple because there's a, there's a firewall, uh, and you have to be careful about privacy. But how do you get, how, do, how does an investigator, you know, Rick and if you want to go into the EHR to figure out a patient base if you want to do a study, you know, and how do you do it? And, and can you maneuver that, manipulate it without, uh, you know, doing something about privacy, without, without going around what you're supposed to do? And, and you know, so you can use de-identified data. So we're thinking about figuring out that. Uh, and then um, there's a search for a new director. When we recruited, before we were funded, uh, someone from Stanford named Amar Das as the head of biomedical informatics. He was just great. He was so great that he's just been recruited out by IBM. And uh, IBM is building this big program on data, big data analytics in Cambridge. He's the head of it. So we have a search out, and we have someone who's coming back for a second interview uh, in a, two weeks that we're excited about to get a director of biomedical informatics to replace Amar. This INSPIRE program that Amar and his team built, information sharing platform, sort of, these, and I learned these guys have to have acronyms. Everything's got an acronym. Why, I don't know, but, uh, so INSPIRE. But this is a way, if you go onto the website and you click, I say, I want to be, a, I want to get a statistics consult. It flips into this INSPIRE thing, which routes it to where it's supposed to go and lets us keep track of what's happening. So we know whether, whether the resources are being used and all this stuff. So it allows investigators to do things. It gives us the ability to sort of keep track of the whole thing. REDCap. REDCap is a, is a technique that was designed by Vanderbilt, the Vanderbilt CTSA, Re Research Electronic Data Capture. So if you're an investigator and you want to know how to create a database and how to do surveys and what to do with the data when you have it, REDCap keeps track of all this. And what we've done is figure out a way to have these, this sort of open consultation every week to let people start using this. This, is, this REDCap idea has been now sort of generally uh, kind of fused through the institution over the last couple of years. 
the Atlas Rate Generator. This is a technique. Here's David Goodman, who's a pediatrician in TDI. How to get into the Atlas, the Dartmouth Atlas, the data within the claims databases of, of the Atlas, to get into it and know how to maneuver it and manipulate it and ask questions about it. And this is something that David has been presenting these webinars, not only here, but nationally. So to get the national CTSA world to be able to use the Dartmouth Atlas in a way that's productive. It's interesting because it's never been able to be done before. And so again, you have these firewalls that have to be protected. How do you get into this? How do you protect it? Uh, how do you make sure the IRB doesn't squawk about this? We've figured this all out. Clinical research units. So again, we never had one of these here. And it took Murray Cork tried to build the clinical research unit when he was starting the CTSAs and we couldn't get it done for all kinds of reasons, not because he didn't try. Um, but fortunately, eventually we were able to build it, as you probably know, it's on Faulkner 4, and it's uh, just one of the corridors there. Uh, but it's a, a the Synergy Clinical Research Unit, and it, it has provided support, in, 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 I guess right now, in this year, for this number of studies and investigators. Because of the population density in the South, we figured, well, wait a second, why don't we do something in Manchester as well? So in the last year, uh, with help of Rick and, and Lori Lester, who's here, and a number of other people, Rick and Love, built a DH Manchester unit, which is just getting going, with the notion of, okay, if you want to do a study of, you know, doesn't matter what it is, but you need a population, and the population in the upper valley is, is you know, there are more bears than there are uh, people in some ways, certainly around my house. They, they were in my backyard. I guess they're now in Littleton or someplace. But, uh, I'm, I'm sure they're going to find their way back to my house. I just have that side of it. We've opened this, and, um, and and it's actually working. It's moving slowly, but it's getting going. In addition, we the clinical research units, we consider the Advanced Imaging Center with the 3T MRI part of this. And this, this system was uh, actually built with a grant from NIH and now has to be upgraded, so we're going to be upgrading that. Uh, there's this animal, small animal facility, a 9.4 animal facility in the basement of Borwell. I don't know if you know this, but this is a... $2 million piece of equipment. Uh, it's in the basement of Borwell. And you may know, if you walk over the bridge, the, the, the ground slopes like this. You know, David, you go across the bridge, the ground slopes mm -hmm. down to the, and right there is the basement. And guess what happens when it rains? <laughs> and the magnet is down there, and the room is flooded. And so the room is wrecked. But fortunately, the magnet's OK. We're upgrading it, rebuilding the room, and putting pumps so it won't happen again, we hope. But so this will be available in an imaging processing course. So if you want to do imaging, and let's say you're not an imager, probably you want to do imaging, you're not an imager, but we have groups who can help you figure out how to do it and sort of do it for you. So that imaging, which is a tremendous, tremendously powerful tool, can be more broadly based and, and spread, whether it's animal imaging or human imaging. This is the utilization of the crew over these last years. In 2013, we just started it. Uh, and you can see this is three quarters of, of fiscal year 2017. And we're this by the end of the year, we're going to be up here somewhere. So the utilization is going up. Offside is that the, that the group and the crew, and this is only the Lebanon one, 
can do studies you know, on site other places other than on Faulkner 4. So there are a lot of studies going on here uh, in Peter Road, for instance. So the problems that I still see here, uh, and Lionel Lewis is in the back of the room, really knows a lot about this, as does Rick uh, and others, the, the need to upgrade the culture for clinical research, in, in, especially here at the age. You know, you walk into the Brigham, you see uh, signs about clinical research everywhere. And they're kiosks, you know, be part of this, register for uh, genomic studies, do this, do that. And I think that this is something that needs to be done here. And this is the advice of our external board. Uh, how to make research processes user-friendly, both for investigators and for patients. When you, when you do a study, time to first patient in the protocol. If it takes a long time, the study won't get done. Uh, how do you audit it? How do you make sure that studies are performing? If you're not, how do you close them down because they're expensive to run? So Lee Burgess, who's now been brought in as the Vice President for Research Operations here, is going to be able to leverage a lot of this, I think. <coughs> We're going to be working with her. How do you improve the culture? Well, you know, advertise, as they do in the Brigham, for instance, and elsewhere, videos have research subject statements. But one of the key things that we kept hearing about was, and I hear about it in psychiatry, of course, is that people don't have enough time. You know, and, uh, clinicians are busy. Our, uh, RVUs are, you know, the currency of the realm. So we've tried to figure out ways to get around this, and you'll see. And then how to make the IRB here, the, uh, at least as functional as it can be, and link it nationally with other programs. I'll show you a little bit about that. Now, one of the thoughts that we had when we started was, well, to get stuff going, why don't we give out pilot awards and pilot studies? And uh, we figured, okay, $50,000 to get something done over the course of a year or two years or something. And so we started putting out these uh, RFAs or advertisements for uh, availability of pilot studies once a year. And we really were, have been flooded with people who want to do these studies. What we decided to do was to say, if you want to do this, you have to have two different departments working together. Translational research, the idea of it's not one investigator doing it, it's a team of investigators. That's the nature of translational research. So people, have, lots of people have applied, and, and we've been able to fund 25 of these over, well, between 14 and 16. Uh, lots of publications have come out. It takes time to be able to convert this into, into external funding, but already, uh, out of this group, things have uh, started to happen. Um, the, there are various kinds of these pilots. Again, I'll make these slides available if people want to see them, but doing so-called reverse translation, increasing the speed of translation, doing research based on the community, developing new technology, classic translational <coughs> clinical studies, database investigations. And we've been working with, uh, our team has worked with people to try to help them. How do you write one of these things? How can you do it? If you don't know what, how to do it, can we help you? And then if you don't get funded, can we give them, you a mentor to make sure that the next time you will get funded? And we've had a certain amount of success with this. This is, uh, oh, sorry, in, here we are. In 2017, that's the first one, yes, <coughs> sorry. Uh, we funded uh, Charlie Sentiment and Margaret Ackerman. Uh, Ackerman, she's in Microimmuno and Thayer. 
Craig, who said in our medicine, obviously, and and uh, uh, Shadane Coker, and in, in also in Hemonk. Uh, let me go back one. Uh, Jabron Kokar, who's in psychiatry, working with someone in psychology and brain sciences. Uh, Jeffrey Luke in Thayer, working with Leslie Jarvis, you, you all know, of course. Uh, John Batson, who's here, <coughs> working with David Coates in computer science. And this is the study of eHealth delivered health coaching intervention, right, John? It's working? We're starting. We're starting. Is it finished yet? Have you gotten funded externally yet? Well, we just. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Scott Davis uh, from Thayer, working with Kimberly, uh, also someone from surgery, on this idea of a bias list. You can see the tremendous variety of these things. Let me give you an example. I don't know, I don't know how many people know Joe Paterfar, uh, who's the head of ENT here. Uh, Joe's a great guy, really a wonderful, wonderful guy. And I, I got to know him a number of years ago, and he said, he just, one day, we we're just chatting in the hall, he said, you know, I want to do research. And I said, what do you want to do research on? He said, I don't know. And he said, my, my brother, his brother is a neurologist, a neuroscientist. He said, my brother does this. I'd like to do research. Uh, can you help me? I said, okay. Uh, what do you want to do? He said, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to send you an idea. So he then, uh, maybe a couple months, three months later, when, and, and when a notice of about these pilots came out, he sends me this idea. And, and his idea was that, what we do, we do, I do surgery, in, oral surgery in the mouth, and I try to remove tumors. And before I do the surgery, I sort of retract everything to make sure I get an idea of what it looks like. But I do an MRI, I can't do an MRI with the retractors because you can't put them in the MRI. So he said, there's there got to be a way around this. And he said, that's what I'm interested in. So he sent me his idea, but it, it was not written as a research study. So I called him up at night. I said, Joe. This is not going to get funded because it isn't, it isn't really a research study. It's a great idea. And, and he says, so what do I do? I said, well, how about this? How about if we link you up with some of the people in this research design group and they help you work on this? And that's exactly what happened. And he got funded. So this is, he wrote me a note about this saying that his, you know, they're improving outcomes. Uh, you know, as with many surgeons, I have very limited time. But this, this pilot funding allowed him to collaborate with someone from Thayer and he's now used 3D imaging to create this technique for being able to do this intraoperative MRI displaced uh, picture that helps him do the surgery. And, and he, you know, the long short of it is he's published some of this, he's begun to get uh, funded, he's, he's uh, talking about a patent and he's about ready to put in R1. That's exactly what we're trying to do to get clinician investigators or people who are clinicians who are interested in doing research, have great ideas, and maybe haven't figured out how to do it yet. Um, we obviously have a VA that's a strong partner. And the new director of the VA, Al Montoya, came from West Haven, is very interested in linking with uh, DH and with Geisel to improve research. And they have been funding um, a synergy investigator, Brian Lucas was funded uh, by the VA to work with Synergy using mentoring to try to get things going at the VA. There's a second recruitment being launched. That's a great idea, I think. So in terms of education, what we've tried to do is to uh, fund what we call KO2 Scholars. This is a career development award. Uh, so again, we thought that the 
pipeline of young investigators was thin. There were a fair number of people who were funded who had hair the color of mine, uh, and uh, you know, but not enough young people getting into this. It's it's tough, and and the RVU demands are incredible, and so what can we do? And so one of the things we thought we'd do is to try to fund these scholars, career development, KL2 scholars, um, with the notion of protecting a good portion of their time. We funded, in, in this three-year period, 11 of them. Out of this group, a number of them have now gotten funded externally with AHRQ, NIH Foundation funding, publications are pouring out. We've put together this advanced certificate program. Uh, John, did you, were you part of that? Yes, I was. Okay. And a research development workshop. I'll tell you a little bit about that. We've created a mentoring team that helps people, the, the idea anyway, is that we link mentors up with people, more than one, to try to make sure that if we're investing in people, that they, as much as possible, that they're going to be successful and we help them be successful. The worst thing to do would be to get people funded and then it just doesn't work. They get discouraged and it never goes anywhere. And I can tell you, when, especially when I was at, at Harvard, I saw so many people who, young people who were just so enthusiastic about doing research, they get this idea, they try to do something and they just didn't know what they were doing and they just got angry and discouraged and they never did it again. And that, we're trying to avoid that, if at all possible. The notion of clinical research fellowships, I'll tell you about, another way of protecting time of people. And this thing that came out of Aaron Kaplan's head, uh, clinician entrepreneur fellows. Okay, let me go through a few of these. So the education programs, you take someone who's, you know, here's Joe Padafar, a new investigator. Uh, we're putting together, and we have put together, this research development workshop, which is just starting now, a four-week session to try to help people figure out how do you ask a research question? How do you create aims for a study? How do you plan the study? It, and then for people who are a little bit more sophisticated, um, you know, like John, John Batsis and, and others, an advanced certificate program in clinical translation research. And this meets weekly, uh, two hours a week, uh, going through lectures and tutorials, and then getting to the point where you actually are, you show people how you're going to write the proposal, and it gets critiqued. And no, no, this is, this is you can't write it that way. You know, just come on, and the review committee will kill you. And so we try to help people get ready to submit these things. And the, the, um, the provost office also has some uh, ability to help people with this, and we link with them. There are these podcasts that other CTSAs have, and I'll show you one of them. Uh, for established investigators, we're trying to help them figure out how to be good mentors. There's a trick to being a mentor. The main trick is being able, being willing to do it, but um, and spending the time at it. But there, but you really have to learn how to do this correctly. This is one of these podcasts, and there are many of them. And you go onto your, our website, you can find these things. This is from Tufts. Their CTSA program, the Tufts CTSI, they call it, created iLearn, which is a set of lectures and online lectures that you can see. And so again, these are all available. We show people how to get to them. We can work with people on them to try to develop this capacity for research and clinical research around here. Yeah, okay. So of the this past year, in 2016, just to show you, this is pretty competitive, unfortunately, because we, we, I wish we had the ability to fund more of these, but the NIH limits the number of these that we can fund. 
So the whole, and this is an NIH K award that's funded through our synergy program, but it's a legitimate NIH award for two years. So it protects 70% time for two years. And in 2016, we had slots for funding three new scholars with the intensive mentoring period. They all participate in this program. And, and the experience that we've had is that it's led to external support. The ones we just funded in 2016, um, Josh Aronson in surgery, who's interested in traumatic brain injury and has an animal model that he works with. And he's actually going to be working at the VA as well because they've got this unbelievable system at the VA that has been unused for years, I guess. It's this tube. I went over there and did a tour of the VA research facilities, which I'd never seen before. And they have this room. It's empty, perfectly clean. They're great at keeping things nice and neat. And you go in there, there's an enormous tube that's about the, from that wall over to here. And I said, what the hell is this for? They said, oh, this is, you, you put a, a, a plastic explosive on that end, and it creates a charge, and it's a blast down here, and you put a small animal in it, you can study traumatic brain injury. I said, have you ever used it? They said, well, no. What's it doing here? Well, I don't know. So I came here one day. I called up Josh Aronson, who's in, and so he's going to be using that thing, and, and for his research. Wada Doucette, who's actually in psychiatry, is, is interested. You talk about you know, obesity and all this. He does neurostimulation in animals. And, and Raghwal Madbera, who's in, in medicine, stem cell transplant rejection. And you can see some of the others. Here's Alex, who just I had, I think he just walked out. But he was, he was, he's been funded. Uh, Sarah Ackerman uh, in psychiatry, she actually got funded and then was uh, picked off by a pharmaceutical company. Is that the best result? Well, I think it, sure, it's good for her. And she likes the idea, and she's happy as a clam. Um, <laughs> is a clam happy? <laughs> no, yeah. uh, you know, it depends on the water that you're in, I guess. Jor Ben Zev is someone who was uh, funded uh, early on uh, for research uh, as, with KL2. And I asked him to write something to me. And this is what he wrote me. This award serves as the launching pad, basically. And it, the data collected allowed me to develop pilots. He's gotten three NIH grants, or one, two NIH grants and one from Pecori. And he uses REDCap. And by the way, he was just recruited by the University of Washington. And he's now a professor at the University of Washington linking with Microsoft because he's interested in mobile health. Uh, are, are, we, are we populating the rest of the country? Well, the idea is we're going to populate people here. Sometimes they're going to be recruited because they're so good. Uh, Alex Gifford, who just walked out, um, he got a Synergy Scholar Award, and, and this is what he wrote to me, came in key juncture. I was interested in clinical transitional research in CF. I began to establish relationships with colleagues, but was trying to get this thing going. Uh, the award helped me you know, cross the divide, and now he's supported by the CF Foundation for both the Pilot Investigation and Career Development Award. Exactly what we're trying to do. <coughs> now, now, the other thing that we had, so, so the other thing I keep hearing about is that no one can do this because there's no time. That, uh, you know, and I know, I know that's true. RVU uh, demands are extraordinary. Uh, it's hard to get time, free time to think, if not to do research. And, and, you know, to be able to do research, you have to have time that's set aside to literally be able to think about it, if nothing else. And so we figured, well, could we use some of our funds to protect the time of 
people who are not at the stage of getting one of these scholar awards yet, and maybe not even ready to, to get a pilot, but are really have the fire in the belly. They just want to do it. So I asked the chairs and the center directors of each clinical group <coughs> to nominate one person from their department or center. And then we had a, a review committee. By the way, all these, all these things are reviewed. We have an NIH-style study session to review everything. And these were all reviewed. And the six groups, six people that were thought to be the, of the highest likelihood of success were people, uh, Christina uh, Angelis from surgery, Robert Brady from psychiatry, Victoria Lawson from neurology, Philip Shainer from radi radiation oncology, Lauren uh, Tormey from medicine, and Ivy Wilkinson-Ryan from OBGYN. So these six clinicians were each given 20% protected time starting December, and this will go through June, and we're probably going to do it again, uh, with the idea, and, and, and provided mentors. Okay, what's your question? What do you want to study? How do you go about doing it? Can we link you up to get ready to get a pilot award from us or somewhere else? You know, one of the Cobris around here, the Hitchcock Foundation, the Cancer Center. Where, how can you get funded? Or, or external foundations, or, or even NIH right away. And we're delighted that the 2017 scholar, we had one slot left that we could use right now. And Christina, who is one of these people, was able, rose to the top of a series of, you know, we had lots of people applying, but uh, Christina was selected by the review committee. I, I am not a member of these review committees. I don't sit on them. I, you know, I don't make the decisions about ranking um, quality, uh, but she's interested in, in, the, in melanoma and skin-resistant T-cell memory, really interesting stuff when I read her proposal. She's working collaboratively with Mary Jo Turk in microimmuno and here in Rick Barth in surgery. And uh, her plans are to, to get some training, obviously, and to go for a K award, an NIH K award. Academic industry, I think. So, you know, I, you know, I came, I, I spent most of my career in Boston, uh, and um, actually I still uh, live some of the time. I had a house in, in Cambridge, and Cambridge, the, the industry, pharma development in Cambridge is extraordinary. And we're not, we're not in Cambridge here, but there ought to be a way for us to link more closely with industry and with venture capital, to, and venture capital programs to try to optimize our research and get it moving. So we had this idea of connecting investigators with foundations and companies. And, uh, and we've been doing some of this with Saldera here, which Jake Reeder uh, runs, some of you may know. But also this idea that Aaron Kaplan came up with, developing this notion of a clinician entrepreneur fellow. So here's the idea that we would put out, again, one of these RFAs, and people could apply for them and say, OK, I've got this idea of something. So there was someone who was actually, one of the people who applied had a way of figuring out kind of a Google Glass-like system that would allow him to read an MRI or a CT scan as he was operating that way. So you could read it. You don't have to t tilt your head because you don't want to get your head away from the field. That was one of the, one, it was really interesting idea. And there were a number of them. And we, these were reviewed by a group that I was not part of. And the top four were selected. And they were then presented to a team of venture capitalists and, and people who do funding and are interested in the healthcare space. And the one that rose to the top the first time we did it was Rick Barth. 
And Rick Barth has this notion, and you may, have known, you may know about his work. He, he has what, what he calls a breast cancer locator project. The idea of being able to figure out a technique for making sure that the margins of the tumor are really clean, getting the thinnest margins possible, removing the least amount of tissue. So he had this idea, and he started working with groups from Thayer. And they ended up developing a business model, intellectual property, that they got, uh, developed a patent on, clinical trial design, strategic planning, and they formed a company, Cairn Surgical uh, LLC. It provided me him with access to a number of mentors here who do that sort of thing. And then the company's been awarded a grant from NIH in a small business, SBIR grant, uh, and then a grant from the state of New Hampshire. And then they've applied for a, a second phase SBIR grant, same thing, which is for, would be for more money. And this is what he said about it. This is what we're trying to do. The second one that we've awarded, I don't have a slide of, is a fellow named Bill Bedenko, who has a web-based or, or a, a mobile technology-based way of trying to study um, the risk of suicide in emergency rooms. And he's developed a company called Proxy. And we've been supporting some of his work uh, in the same way. So what, what the fellowship supports 20% of the time and, and gives a little bit of you know, spending money to figure out how to get this going. Then there's this whole idea of community-engaged research, which is a big component of synergy. And in my opinion, something that's really important to do. Steve Bartels uh, basically runs this program with, with a number of other people. Uh, there's, a, there's an advisory board that, that he has put together that meets, actually it's been meeting almost monthly now, to try to think about, okay, how do you do this kind of work? Uh, it's interesting that this board and, and other boards around here, you may know, spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out what are the questions that are most important to the community. And there were, I think if I remember, that there were four of them. Um, one was mental health, it's not because of me. Mental health in, in mental health issues in primary care. The second one is with substance abuse problems diagnosed with the opioid epidemic, with substance abuse problems. The third was frail elderly, and the fourth was access to treatment for underrepresented people or, or you know people who couldn't otherwise get in. The, the board suggested we take on the first two: mental health in substance in primary care systems and substance abuse in primary care systems. So the, the community advisory board is working with us to try to figure out how to do that. And it's linked to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Collaboratory for Population Health that you probably know about that's led by Steve. And the practice-based network of Dartmouth Co-op, which has been around for, what, 40 years, Dave? Yeah, at least. It's, you know, led by John uh, Wasson and, and Alan Dietrich, and just an amazing group of, of, of primary care clinicians. I've gone to their retreat, there was a retreat in, uh, this year, and, and so we've been helping that, that, that uh, co-op stay in business and figure out how to be able to really leverage what they do more for research than they've been able to do recently. We have great strength at Dartmouth in this. Implementation science, the idea of taking a technique that you know works and figuring out how to get it into practice. How do, you, how do you get that translated? Implementation science, really an area of strength around here. And the whole notion of, mo of mobile technology, smartphones that you can use for research as well as for therapeutic interventions. Lisa Marsh, who's, who's here, 
is, is a, almost a magician. I mean, if you don't know her, you should meet her. She, uh, we had, she organized, uh, I was involved in it, but she really organized of safe care for infants using electronic care management system. Another one, uh, two, two people in psychiatry, uh, Fallon and Craig Donnelly, working with an outside team of people from the Family Resource Centers of Claremont and Gorham, integrated video-based family therapy for peripartum depression in home visit adolescents. This has been funded. Again, every one of them working with outside groups. And then we're going to uh, just bring, bring this to a close shortly. But, but the translational population research, this is the stuff that comes out of TDI that we're trying to figure out how to leverage for translational science. Um, the spreading the atlas rate generator I talked about. Uh, the work of Anatosis in particular with the nurses' health study data, linking that with their Medicare databases. And suddenly you have an enriched database. This idea of reverse translation, and there are a lot of different aspects of this, but figuring out, for instance, if you look at the claims data and you look at the fact that people are on two different medications, and by the way, the, the, the likelihood of a, of a hip fracture is dramatically greater in these people than you would expect it to be. The individual drugs don't do it, but when you put them together, do. And now this has been linked, this thing has now been linked with Cliff Rosen, who's at uh, Maine Medical Center, who's an expert in osteoporosis and, and trying to understand why these combinations of medications may do it. They've been working on, which is a really a neat idea, the co-production model. I know that sounds like you know, something you do with coal or whatever. I probably shouldn't talk about it given the announcement yesterday, but uh, co-production. The co-production model uh, of trying to figure out how to link patients with, with investigators and to, and to get data from both sides as you do research. It's a, an idea that has been populated a lot by Gene Nelson at TDI and Ellie Fisher. And we're really excited about this and trying to use this model, again, spreading through the CTSAs. In terms of national programs, there's a national CTSA consortium. Dartmouth's in a leadership position in this. Uh, Partly because of our T3, T4 research, implementation science, partly because of our link to Thayer, but partly because we sat on the steering committee nationally, which has 12 people on it. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be the co-chair of this with uh, uh, the people from NIH, 
uh, for a number of years now, and I'm the past co-chair, but still on this committee. The Institute of Medicine report came out. So the new CTSA, as we go to get funded for CTSA 2.0, we're going to have to work more and more and more to link Dartmouth to these other sites. And I think that's a tremendous opportunity around here, because suddenly, if you want to do a study, you don't have to be linked to the, ba the patient base that's here, which is relatively modest. I have an R01 where I got funded uh, years ago, but we've done it in 10 sites throughout the country. That's what ought to be done here, where you, where you, you need large populations for some things. Um, and there's a trial innovation network that's been built nationally that we are plugging into. So again, um, John, you want to do a study here, and you want you need 10 other sites to do it? Boom, it can be done quickly. And we'll show you how this is. And how the smart IRB thing works, which is a way of linking, if, if a study is approved at Dartmouth, it can be done at NYU, at Columbia, at Cornell, at Stanford, at UCLA, just like that, without having to go through their own IRB. So it's, and we've, this is something that we built. Now, the, the, the IRB business was, uh, we were given, Dartmouth was given $5 million supplement to our own CTSA to do this, to link these, these small programs that have been built in various places that, that have been working together to try to get IRBs to work together. We got these groups to get together and, and, and wrote a, a common agreement that now has allowed this to go on nationally so that we created this thing called IRB Rely as a way of building a system and with the help of some of the people, uh, Suki and others in, in, in informatics to create some of these tools to be able to do this. And this is now morphed into something called Smart IRB. And this is out of the CTSA program. It's a national Smart IRB system which basically here, it's, it's led, that we, we did this, we were the PIs originally of this, and now it's moved into where Harvard Catalyst, their CTSA, is leading it, there I am as part of it, and the University of Washington, University of Wisconsin is part of it. So this is a system, every CTSA in the country has now signed on to this. The Trial Innovation Network, this thing that's just being built, a fabulous opportunity for anybody here to be able to do a study across the country and again, if you look at the, you look at our website, you can see this, the Trial Innovation Network. So here, again, you have to be part of a CTSA to participate in this. But here it is, and, and you know how you how you can do a study. They will provide you with the capacity to do national research. So. Just to bring this to a close, CTSA 2.0, we have to reapply. So we're going to reapply in January of 2018. Our, our grant actually ends uh, April 30th, 2018, but we will have a no-cost extension. We have money, money to be able to continue this for a while. So we're going to apply in January, uh, and to create, to, to link Dartmouth into this national network, the, the presence of Lee Burgess now as the vice president for um, uh, research operations to Hitchcock is a really important person for us because she will have her, she and her group will have responsibility for making sure that the systems work here as we can begin to innovate change and, uh, and look to the, you know, follow the direction of the Institute of Medicine report. So our, our new grant will be, we, the CTSH, we're going to try to continue to catalyze innovative research at Dartmouth and throughout the CTSA program. 
to advance the translation of discoveries through you know, developing people to do this, team science, community engagement, across the lifespan integration, methods and process, IRB Rely is an example of this, and biomedical informatics. We're going to enhance the national network through this trial innovation network. We're going to use it, and we're going to have our own piece of that. And we're going to basically use the strength in population research, mobile technologies, implementation science to sort of really be, to kind of hold on to that corner of the CTSA world nationally. So Dartmouth has, we, we've punched way, way, way above our weight. Our budget uh, is a fraction of what, for instance, Harvard has, because our budget is based on the amount of NIH-funded research here. The total budget for the CTSA over the five-year period is about $17 million. Now, that's been just about matched by Dartmouth. But, if, but the budget for Harvard Catalyst, for instance, is NIH component is $27 million a year. Ours is $3.8 million a year. There's a slight difference. But we, we, so we have a small program based on the amount of NIH research we have here. But it's just, to me, it's just been amazing. And I hope that you all will spend time on the website, see what goes on here, see how we can really, and the, and the team that's here, uh, can help, you know, kind of, Stimulate research. That's the idea. Uh, that's what Jim Weinstein has wanted us to do. That's what the dean wants us to do. That's what the provost wants to do, us to do, and president of, of Dartmouth through Thayer, through arts and sciences, obviously through the VA. Here. So with that, thanks very much. Yes, please. Um, you, know, you mentioned two training programs, one that provides 20% protected time for six months, and another that's that... Right. It actually ends up being about seven or eight months. Okay, maybe better. And then another 75% for two years. Right. Based on your experience of these three years and over a lifetime, what is the sweet spot? You know, 20% for whether it's six months or, or eight months, it gets a road it's, it's to average. It's 20% or not. The answer is probably not. Uh, we thought, but we don't have the funds to do much more than that. But in some of these cases, the departments are matching it a little bit, giving another 10%, 15%. Uh, you know, but we, well, we want to do research. I probably know everybody here on Dr. must know that this is, you don't do this you know, 8, 9 to 5. You do it at night, so we can do it at bucks. I mean, that's just, you know, those constantly just added. So, the idea is to give people a window of time where they just are protected, where they aren't getting called, they aren't in, on line for emergencies. This is just, you have time to sit and then you can work with your mentor. That's, that's what my, our idea. I base it to something that my own experience about how I did it. And when I was, you know, in Boston, I actually didn't have what was called protected time and then, but you know, I figured out a way of sort of carving out what I could and then, you know, nights and weekends and so forth. But, you know, I think that's hard. And, and, and the RVU demands are more, more are just more intense than they were when I did it. Now, there isn't, there wasn't, I was able to figure out a way to move my schedule around. I'm not sure if sure people can do that now. So that's why we thought we'd do it this way. They were done. Do you think um, it worked? Well, first of all, I learned a lot from this about 
how you thought about 1.0 and what's going to be different for 2.0. So yeah, I think it's going to be a small institution, like you say, uh, leveraging what we have to do bigger things, uh, disproportionate to what very large institutions. Yeah. The, the advantage of being able to do more clinical research, let's say at Hitchcock, for instance, it's really interesting. They did a study at MUSC, not the University of South Carolina, showing that if they brought clinical trials in, the payer mix changed into a more favorable payer mix. So it helped the clinical system, and patients came in because of that, but also the payer mix changed. So it actually was, was a profit margin. The clinical research unit, which we started and had actually been paying for, over time is now generating its own money. So it, it basically can get almost revenue neutral. So you start doing these things, and before you know it, the whole system begins to rise with it. And the, the culture of the entire place changes. That's what we're trying to do. Yes? I'm not sure I'm going to be able to articulate this question exactly, but I'm wondering about the, how this could help with recruitment. So as you know, we now have um, tracks, facilitators, <coughs> And that's the majority of people coming in are clinicians and educators. Um, it would seem like this is, could be very attractive for people who are not going to come in as a clinician. <coughs> they're not coming in with, you know, with a strong research background of one sort or another. Um, so, A, it would seem like this is something that we should really have out front in terms of recruiting physicians, uh, which is tough. Number one. Number two, um, speaking as a section chief in a small section, uh, there's this real challenge that goes beyond kind of the RBU challenge. It has to do with taking care of the clinical population and the coverage, which is, you know, I'm always reluctant to say, oh, sure, go ahead and get, you know, 0.5 of your time funded. And then how do you kind of fill that space? And so I'm not sure how all this fits together, but that is another big issue that we have. Uh, and you are so right. I, I, that's a great question. Um, you know, in, in terms of recruitment, I mean, uh, Josh Aronson, who uh, was one of the people from this neurosurgeon who was recruited here from the NHH, and is, is actually one of, has one of our suits, <coughs> that was one of the character arguments. Not that we didn't offer it to him, he had to compete for it, but, uh, you know, he was actually someone who had already been trying to work on it day before. And he ended up uh, getting one shortly after he got here. Uh, and now he could use the availability of synergy. And I, people had me interviewing candidates all the time. And it shouldn't be only me. I think that that is a great uh, you know, apple or carrot or whatever that we have that we can offer to people. And that does, I do think it's, it's changing this place in a serious way. Now, the issue, the answer to your question is it's a culture thing. How do you do this? How do we make sure that a small section can cover itself and not, you know, you as the head of the section, you know, say, well, I'm, I'm not sure I want him to get or her to get a, uh, you know, a big NIH grant to protect just 50% of the time. What the hell am I going to do then? And we have to, as an institution, figure this out. It's like, this is going to be an academic medical center, a serious one. We just have to figure this out. Uh, and there are ways to do it. It requires uh, funding. It requires flexibility. Um, yeah, yeah, we have a program where some of our sections are not that deep, and that's, that's where it becomes a problem. 
But I, I agree with you. I think this is a tremendously attractive way of bringing clinicians invest in the research. You know, I sat on the board of directors. I sat on the board of directors for years, and the board of directors used to be because she's, I think, been around the board for years. She used to review all these CVs that would come through, and I would see these people who were coming here, and the board would vote on this, bring them here. They have great track records in their training. They had research training. They get here, they don't do any research. I watched that for years. I couldn't. What the heck's going on here? Why is that? You know, it's a great game. These people were boom, off and running. Why is it they came here? Why did they do that? And it has to do with the the, the steps on the ladder. You've got to be able to figure out how to give them the opportunities and to encourage them to do it and make it, you know, make it. It's important to get promoted. It's important to do this stuff. It contributes to the institution to get research funding. You know, get rewarded for it. You're, 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 Salary is somehow back on that. You know, in psychiatry, I can tell you, we do that. And you know, you may know that psychiatry has been very successful in terms of research. And so, what I'm trying to figure out is how do we take those ideas that, that I, I and others have seen in other institutions, and to some degree in my own department, and, and spread them throughout the, this, this institution more broadly. I think it's possible. You know, everybody says, the board says, academic medical, academic medical. There's a chief academic officer. There's an attempt to really build a strong research base here. There, that people want to do clinical trials because, again, it will bring in brands to this institution. It will increase the brand of presentations. I mean, you think about it lots of different ways. We should probably stop it. Thank you all very much.